That's improv, bitch. That's an Im improv, bitch. I mean, after all, you're nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Hi, I'm Jimmy Corain, and this is another episode of Improv Nerd. You know him from 30 Rock, Mr. Show, and Adult Swim's Moral Oral and Frankenhole. Our guest this week is Scott Atz. We sat down with Scott at the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival in Chicago, and he talked about what happens between Tracy Morgan and Tina Fey when they get in a room together, what he's been telling Tina about her acting for years, and the best way to get cast in a college production is to drop out of school. Scott Atzid. Let's can we? I, I want to start with your dad. Now he, you described him as having a uh, a very uh, sneaky, sneaking the way he jokes sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, give me an example of your dad's sense of humor when you were a kid. Well, he was very quiet uh, generally. I think because my mom likes to do a lot of talking, so uh, <laughs> I think eventually he just kind of turned the wheel over and let her drive most of the time, and. He would observe, though. He would sit in the corner of the conversation, not the room so much. And uh, he would snipe. Uh, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't a tax on you. It was just a tax on the conversation or seeing uh, the fallacy of what was being said and waiting for the right moment to knock it all down. Um, how was how your style of sense of humor similar to his? Um, I guess I wait for my moment. I'm not a grandstander. Um, and I, I try to pack more, this is stupid, try to pack more punch into, uh, fewer jokes with, that then have more weight. Oh, boy. Well, why, I, why about, you I don't self, think about this, Jimmy. Why are you so self-conscious about that? Because now I have to, like, analyze myself and, and step outside and say, why am I funny? But you seem like question. a pretty introspective person. Um, when it comes to comedy and stuff and acting, I'm spective. Okay, what's the difference between spective and introspective? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't consider my own navel very much. Uh -huh. um, but I think about the art form a lot. But I, I don't know if I could um, paint a picture of myself within it. Do you obsess like after you've shot something for Thirty Rock or you did a show at uh, the Pit or something like that? Do you obsess about stuff like that or do you just let it go? I used to. Um, I used to take every uh, every moment that I didn't feel was honest or that I let someone down or um, that didn't get the laugh I was expecting as the words were coming out, um, and and blame myself and go home and, and or you know spend the whole evening wishing I could go back and change that moment. Uh, but now I've just performed so many times that it doesn't matter. And and the failures are not failures anymore. They're just what happened. It's like what, when you and I were in college together. We At were Columbia College with Martin DeMott. In my first college improv class. Was it your first improv class? Uh, it might have been. And he said... Uh, it's not about what should have happened, it's what could have happened. Right. And there's a big difference there. And so I understood that intellectually for a long time, but it took a, it took a, quite a while to actually uh, take that in. 
and employ it. And so now, you know, I, I've performed enough that I've succeeded enough times that I can allow myself to fail. And if I'd allowed myself to fail earlier than I started to, I think I would have been even more successful. Even more successful. Well, you know, it was interesting because I read something that you didn't think you were good until you got to L.A. Is that true? Um, I read it in some... some uh, no, I think I... I think I thought that was pretty good in Chicago. Uh-huh. Um, I was on the main stage of Second City. That's a nice feather in right, cap. Right, right. Um, I think at that point I felt that I must have been good in, in some way. I was, But I was surrounded by great people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a great kind of safety net there uh-huh. uh, that allowed me to, to fail. And uh, maybe I got funnier in L.A. Or maybe I smartened up by the time I got to L.A. Um, because I changed the kind of improv I was doing to something, if I may, um, I saw you and Stephanie Weir do the show called Naked. Yes. Which I had never seen a show like that before. Mm-hmm. It was the two of you uh-huh. uh, performing for about an hour. Yep. And you did, I think, one scene. We did one, one entire scene, yeah. And I had never seen that before. Uh-huh. And I, it blew me away. And... To this day, I'm still trying to. I'm chasing that dragon, you know, because I do shows now with two people almost, almost exclusively. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Why is that? It's just more enjoyable. There's more exploration. There's less um, trying to squeeze in. It's all about you can you can be in response the entire hour mm-hmm. rather than waiting for your moment or trying to plan the scene ahead or standing on the wall or in the, on the side or whatever and thinking, how can I save this or how can I make this better or should I not go in? And when when you, it's just the two of you, you're in character the whole time. You don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. So there's no slipping out and being an observer. And I, I love that. Why do you still improvise? I mean, you've got Dirty Rock. It's got to be a pretty big schedule, I mean, in terms of the, the, the hours and stuff like that. What, why? Why? Um, I think because it makes me feel clever. It makes me feel... Uh, I, I get an immediate response. Um, and it's like... Um, it's like the perfect little high. Because you get, you get generally, audience approval. And, uh, and you get to be different things and, and, and be funny in different ways every time you do it. Because like on 30 Rock... I have very specific character that responds very specifically to things uh, that you can count on. That's what sitcom acting is, is, is responses that, that audiences anticipate and, uh, and require because they know the character and that's the way he would react. And on stage, uh, in a play, you know, you're kind of, it's dictated to you how you respond. And in improv, it's all up to you and your partner and uh, you get to be so many different things. And in the show, like I'm doing two-person shows generally now, um, some go the entire length, one scenes, and more often it's, it's a bunch of scenes, and that way I get to be as many different types of people as possible and responding differently to different things. Um, let's go back a little to you growing up. All right, because I found this so fascinating. You grew up in Northbrook, which is a very middle-class, uh, white, uh, 
uh, neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And your first improv class was rumored, her name was Karen Little, and she was rumored <laughs> to be a Playboy Playmate. Yes. First of all, I want to know, how did that rumor start? Uh, well, I think it was true, for okay. one thing. Um, and it and I got around, and I never, I don't think I ever saw anybody who had a copy of her thing, because it had been a good 15 years since she had been in the, the centerfold. But she... Um, it was kind of well known. She kind of held herself like she had accomplished something, and she was really confident and very pretty. And uh, she, and she and she was like uh, aloof and playful. It was she was she was sexy. What was she like as a teacher? Who knows? <laughs> um, she was good. She, she's my first one. She she gave me very good advice, and I had good instincts. She told me that. Maybe See, that I, was the advice she gave you. Here's yeah. my advice. You have good instincts. Uh, no, she, two more. Is that what she? She, she, <laughs> she had. Uh, she knew the basics of improv, which which I didn't, and so um, I learned the very basics from her about not asking questions and and object work and believing where you are and, and establishing things for the audience so that they can follow you along. Um, and then I went to high school and learned from really great teachers about uh, about improv, which wasn't. I don't think it was a very common uh, thing to teach in high school back in the 80s. No, because I went to New Trier, which wasn't far from where you went to, Glenbrook North, yeah. and we had no improv at all. And I'm interested because for you, this is the early 80s, this is before the improv boom is happening, and you guys have at Glenbrook North uh, a, a group called The Immediate Conception. Yeah. Now, were you guys cool or were you guys nerds back then? No, I think we were cool. I think we were. Um we we performed at the assemblies and we would god love uh pat murphy the guy who who was the theater director there because he uh encouraged us to criticize the school and the and the and the uh, curriculum and the policies and uh so we could actually do like political commentary on our little community which was really uh wonderful and i think they put the kibosh on that after i left um <laughs> I think I think eventually the that aspect of the immediate conception went away, and then it, I think they still have an improv group, but they don't even call it the immediate conception anymore, which I think is a brilliant name. That's the best improv group name I've ever heard. <laughs> Do you know how it, they, who came up with it? Or the how first it? group, which was I think was five years ahead of me, mm-hmm. came up with that. Um, a guy named uh, Mark Benihoffen mm-hmm. was one of the, my great inspirations back then. Uh, he went on to do some uh, great theater work and, and some TV work as well. And then you end up in Columbia College. That's where we met, at, mm-hmm. uh, taking an improv class with Martin Amat, yeah. as we talked about before. And when I was there, you were getting leads in the in the place. You were like, you were the big guy. You were the B man. B what are they called? Big man on campus. And I remember you showing up to class one day wearing slippers, and I'm like, this guy's got to be good if he's wearing <laughs> slippers. Yeah, comfort uh, was big for me. Yeah. And we had Norm Holly, who was one of your teachers mm-hmm. back then, and he was uh, he was talking about this class that he taught, where you would uh, create new material every week, comedy workshop. Yeah, um, and he said that a lot of times people wouldn't even register for this class; they would just go and do it. And he, I think he said you took it like several times with not even just basically auditing it. I, well, it. I, I, I think uh, after. Two years of, of school, um, I stopped going to my academic classes <laughs> at Columbia, and so they they kicked me out. 
and I was I was booted out of college. I didn't graduate, but I I kept going, and they allowed me to I, I guess in quotes audit classes, and uh, I I finished my uh, my college training uh, on the sly, and. <laughs> And much to the chagrin of anyone listening to this now, I was getting leads and plays uh, at a school I wasn't paying for. <laughs> How do they ever let you do that? I don't know. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, and so you, it's rude is what it is. Okay. Um, it's, certainly Columbia doesn't want that out, I'm sure. No. No. Don't. But don't you meet a group of people, because that was the other thing about being cool. It wasn't just wearing slippers. You hung out with really the cool kids. Do you want to tell us who you, you were friends with at Columbia? Uh, well, Anna Shapiro. Okay, who goes on to direct uh, uh, Tracy Letts' uh, Osage County. She wins a Tony, doesn't she? The Tony. Right. Um, and a bunch of stuff at Steppenwolf as well uh-huh. she directs. Um, uh, David Cromer, mm-hmm. who's also a huge director. Broadway director. Um, uh, Dino Stamatopoulos. Uh-huh. Andy Dick. Um... Was Jay Johnston? Jay Johnston, yeah. Um, Mike Stoinoff from Who, Blossom. Right, and then he wrote for Conan. And, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's a pretty good group of people. Yeah. You know, and you've maintained relationships with a lot of them. Mm-hmm. W- w- what was it about Columbia, that experience, that you feel so bonded to these people? I'll tell you, it's, it's different now. I've been back to Columbia since I graduated, or didn't graduate. And uh, <laughs> You'll get that honorary degree soon enough. <laughs> Oh, my mom is so on my ass about that. <laughs> how many well, how many hours were you short? Oh, two two years worth of hours. Okay, all right. I'll do the math. Thank you. Okay, I, okay, I dropped out of that. Okay. Um, what was the question? Which, uh, the bond of Columbia. And you said it was. Oh yeah, different. there was a the third floor was the theater department uh, on the Eleventh Street campus, and uh, the whole I guess the whole building was theater, but but the the. Third floor had the offices and uh, classrooms that all surrounded this big open space, um, which was carpeted and otherwise empty. And that was the center of the whole floor. And all the students would come and gather there and and chat and sit and eat and massage each other and do run lines and all all trying to avoid the stage combat people who were throwing rapier and daggers around. And uh, it was this common area. And and you, you knew you could meet people there. You knew you could you could get in trouble there. Um, and it was a, it, it was like being backstage, only everybody was hanging out backstage. Um, and there's a bond that goes on when you do a play, as you know, that mm-hmm. that you become a family. And I think uh, that that room became the family room. And now. It's all cubicle offices, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it's still the same kind of community there. Um, I think that was a big part of it, and also we just we ended up the the, the guys who, who really enjoyed each other would end up um, just doing everything together, doing projects together, going to lunch together, um, doing, doing shows outside of Columbia. Because yeah. we did a play together with uh, Dave Bell, who had, and, and Dino had started that. Big Game Theater, you remember yeah, that? Yeah, uh, Tom Bell. Tom Bell. Yeah, uh, we did Are You Now or Have You Ever yeah, directed you, by Anna yeah. Shapiro. And uh, um, and back then, I thought you were like a really, you were, 
you were just getting into Second City, but you were like more of a serious actor. You took yeah. acting really seriously. Yeah, I still do. I take I take whatever comedy I do pretty seriously too. Um, and uh, and I and I've done a few dramas since I got Second City, but but generally I'm kind of categorized as some kind of comedian. Now. What I always found interesting about that that show was it was us, the Columbia people, and then it was the DePaul people yeah. who had gotten uh, they were had like masters of. I don't know, fine arts or whatever. Yeah. And the clump, they would warm up by like stretching and doing vocal exercises. And we would warm up going, okay, who's going to go across the street and get me a Snickers bar? <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah. We, were, we were terrible. <laughs> now, how did you go from Columbia College to Second City? Um, uh, in, in Marty's class that you mm-hmm. and I were in, um, somebody asked if he would recommend them to the training center Mm -hmm. and I ever heard that and I was really enjoying myself in the improv class and I you know I'd kind of had some training before that and then I felt very comfortable doing it in his class and so uh, I said uh, hey do do you think I could go to Second City because my parents had taken me to Second City as a kid a few times and uh, that was always fascinating to me that was like another world I was just watching people do magic in front of me do you remember the first cast you saw there yeah George Went. Mary Gross, Tim Kazarinski, um, Danny Breen, uh, Maureen Kelly. And when you saw it, what what was like so amazing about it? Just how, how like it was different than anything on TV. It was different from uh, even from SNL. Uh, it was. Watching this very small group of people being so many different characters and being funny in a way I'd never seen before. That was fascinating. And it seemed very cool to me. Um, and probably unobtainable. Like, it just like you know, looking at astronauts and going, wow, that would be cool. But then here was this, you know, opportunity. Marty um, also taught at Second City. So, I said to him kind of sheepishly, do you think I, I could do that too? And he looked at me and he kind of looked me up and down and he said, yeah, you should be there. So um, he recommended me and I auditioned and I got in. And back then it was, the training center was five levels, eight weeks each. The, the fifth level was just performance. You, uh, you kind of learn the basics and you go through the kind of characters and scenic work and all that. And then you prepare an actual show and you get to run it for eight weeks um, in front of an audience and hone it. And I don't think they do that anymore. I think the training center is now two years and there's kind of like inter- introductory stuff for, for the uninitiated for a year and then kind of get into more specifically Second City stuff. And then do they only, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but do they only have like one grad show? Um, I'm pretty sure, sh- uh, it's now called the conservatory. It wasn't called the conservatory when we were there. Yeah. And I think when they do the fifth level show, they do the eight weeks of the they performance. Do. Yes, oh, good. They okay. do. They should. Now you were at Second City at a really interesting time in the nineties. Mm. And uh, the show that I really remember you in is the pinata full of bees. Yeah. And there's a story and I've read about the story, but I've never heard you tell it about, I think you were putting the show up and Adam McKay and you come out and you say to the audience, Bill Clinton is dead. Oh, yeah. Well, that... <laughs> Can you tell us that yeah, story? Yeah, we were looking for new ways to affect the audience emotionally. 
Mm-hmm. And we didn't know what this... We, we were trying to change the way a Second City show works. Because it had been the same way for 35 years. And so we were changing the format. We were changing the style of humor. Uh, and the way you get to scenes. The way... Um, like We tried to make it more like a long form. And so there would be scenes. And then little scenes would pop out of those scenes. And then we'd come back to the scene. And it would be... By pop-up, I mean two people were sitting... It's a kind of background characters, and something that's said in the scene sparks a different kind of like a, ta- a tangent thought, or something that proves the opposite of what was just said. And two people pop up and do a little scene at their chairs and then sit back down. Um, it's got like a like a pop up book, and uh, so we we're just looking for for we we're thinking you know. We know we can make them laugh. Is it, can we do anything else on the way to the laugh? And so, um, I think it was Giannis. Tom Giannis who directed it. Or McKay who said, well, let's, let's make them cry. Let's see if, let, let's say the president got shot. And I, most, half the cast was just, I think that's a terrible idea. And I was, I'm always up for something experimental. So I said, okay, well, uh, I'll I'll go out and tell them because I think I, I also knew that I, I could believably tell the audience uh, without them saying this is some bit or whatever. I think I knew how to approach that. So uh, we had this dummy scene that was going on with Dratch, Rachel Dratch, yeah, and uh, and um, probably Adam and, and somebody else, and so they're improvising, and then I come out. And don't enter with a performance energy, but I just kind of like uh, walk out and gingerly, without trying to draw too much attention to it, go over and whisper something in Rachel's ear, and she takes it in, and then she, we discuss a little bit very quietly so the audience can't hear, and she goes off stage, and she takes the other person with her, and I say, I'm sorry um, to have to announce this uh, here. Uh, but the president uh, apparently has been shot just now, and we don't know what's going on. Um, but uh, and I, I kind of made myself believe what I was saying, and uh, it got it got very quiet. There's a quote on the wall, or there was. I don't know if they still have it up there, but uh, Scott Allman, who's in the show, said. Uh, of, of that moment, he, it, it says, uh, it was so quiet you could hear a mouse shit. And uh, and I told them that the president had shot, we didn't have any details, but we were going to bring out uh, some uh, TVs or TVs in the lobby. We're going to tune it to CNN, or, and you can uh, watch the coverage. You're welcome to stay here and watch. We're going to bring one out on stage or, or go or go home, whatever you need to do. Um, no more comedy. <laughs> I thought that was like the really kind of unctuous, awful, um, self-serving thing to say at the end. Uh, but then you wheel out. So yes. So then we we wheel out this um, TV, and uh, and it's our TV from the backstage, and it's got a VCR underneath it. So uh, I say, okay. So we just turn this on, and um, you're welcome to stay. And we turn it on, and it comes up, and it's uh, a, a tape of sports bloopers. And it's just, oh, I'm sorry. And, and I try to fix it, and, and McKay has brought the thing out. He goes, no, no, wait, wait, wait. And then we watch us 
a, a sports movie where happens somebody gets ball uh, hitting the balls or something, and he, and we both kind of chuckle at that, and then we want to see the next one, so we watch the next little blooper, <laughs> and then we sit down, and then the rest of the cast comes out to watch the bloopers, and we all start laughing at the bloopers. So <laughs> that's the joke. Uh, and I think at one, I think at some point when the audience is completely confused about what we're doing, uh, McKay, our backs are to the audience. McKay turns to the audience and says, uh, people love sports bloopers. And then we just sat there and watched the TV for the rest of the show. And uh, the audience, about half of them thought it was funny. And the other half were really insulted uh, and confused. And a lot of them didn't get what was going on. And we stayed and watched those bloopers until there was no one left in the theater, which is not too long. Because once they got that the show was over, they left. But uh, <laughs> uh, we got some complaints, a lot of complaints about that. What did you, looking back at that, what, what did you take away from that? You've got to have a point. You have to have a purpose. You can, you can make anybody feel any way you want on stage. You can manipulate them all you want. You can do it really well, but you have to have a reason to. And we didn't have one. It was just, can we do it? And we found out we could, but then we had nothing to do with that. We, get, we had power, but, but you know, nothing to spend In a way, on. is it saying fuck you to the audience? Um, we didn't see it that way, Okay, but yeah, okay. I think so. It's, it's like uh, we, uh, we did not go out and distract and delight. We lied to them. And there was, no, there was no purpose in it, apart from our self-serving. Can we do this? Have you ever thought, like, oh, if we did it again, this is how I would do it? I, have, I haven't <laughs> looked into how to fix that scene, though. No. <laughs> um, then in 1998, you're, you, uh, there's, you're still doing shows at Second City, and you're two weeks away from opening another show, and you get this opportunity to write a show in L.A., now, can you tell us what, what that opportunity was and, and how you got it? Um, I was about two weeks from opening the new show on the main stage, um, and Dino Stamatopoulos called and said, I've, uh, I'm, I'm, I've been hired as a head writer for a Barry Levinson TV show, and I want you to write on it. Um, you have to move to L.A., at least for a, a month or so. So are you thinking at this time I'm just going for a month? No. I knew that this was going to be the end, because... I was kind of the elder statesman at the main stage now, and um, I, f I felt it, it was a good time. I, w I wish I, you know, I thought I'd be leaving after the show we were opening anyway. Um, but I went in and retired with two weeks before opening. And um, how the producers take that? Well, they weren't happy, but they were happy for me. Mm -hmm. um, and they replaced me with Richard Tallarico, so there was no problem there. Um, and I went out and wrote this. Uh, pilot with, with uh, Dino and Mike Stoinoff mm -hmm. from Blossom and Stephen Colbert um, this pilot about uh, backstage at a live comedy sketch show like SNL um, and it was about all the characters and doings in the writer's room and, and in the producer's offices of this show very much like SNL and uh, I think to tell the truth I think there were the other pilots in the works of that very same Genre from uh, Ellen DeGeneres and Pee Wee Herman, and uh, ours. We pitched it. It didn't quite go the way we wanted it to. It kind of the Barry kind of kind of shifted the focus of what we were writing into to something else. We wanted to write what kind of what he pitched to Dino, which was backstage at SNL and about the characters backstage. Uh, 
with kind of hints into the show itself and bits of sketch that were actually funny, mm-hmm. but it, that wasn't the show. Sketch wasn't the show. And eventually, I think by the time we started, halfway through the writing, he wanted to shift the focus to kind of like 50% or more sketch. Um, good, really good sketch comedy that then is supported by all these weird characters backstage. But it didn't. that didn't ring true to us. We'd rather make fun of sketch comedy and, and why quite often it's awful um, and and then also concentrate on the, the personalities and, and so we, we kind of lost a little bit of our inspiration because we didn't get to write exactly what we wanted to anyway we pitched it and it didn't go and then you know I waited eight years and got that job anyway and we, I heard that you had it there was 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 both of the shows uh the Aaron Sorkin show, the sun, 60 uh, Sunset Strip, and uh, 30 Rock offered to you at the same time? Not offered to me, no. I was I was going to producers for both, mm-hmm. um, which means it's the second to last step before getting hired. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I was up for one of the leads on Sunset Strip, one of the writers, and then... Uh, Tina had had said, you know, I've kind of written this part for you as a producer of this uh, girly show, and uh, you know, I want you to do it. So she, I, I still had to audition for the network for for Tina's show. Um, so I was I, in the space of a couple of weeks, I was auditioning for both shows, um, and it came down to you have to sign with one of them before you can go to the next audition phase. You have to commit. How did you make that decision? It wasn't that hard. It, well, because you called Nora. <laughs> <laughs> I'm referring to a friend of ours who was at Columbia, who was a psychic, became a psychic. <laughs> uh, I wish I had. No, okay. she would have told me this anyway. Right. Um, but Sorkin was coming off of the West Wing, huge uh-huh. hit, intellectual hit, uh, some, a show I respected, um, and so there was a little, there was a moment of, of debate in my head. Because I think I was thinking Sorkin will stay on the air. Tina is kind of that girl from from Weekend Update that people either like or really don't like. Um, and the thing is, I love Tina, mm-hmm. so I had to go with my friend because I really I, I wanted to spend the time with her rather than strangers. Um, what was it like? Because you knew Tina at main stage, and now she's in th- in, 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 at Thirty Rock. Um, how was that? How how have you seen? I think she's amazing because I've never seen anyone in our generation uh, has such a shooting star. I mean, yeah. she is a megastar. Yeah. How have you seen her deal with her fame and stuff like that? Well, I she, I think she enjoys it. I think it also is a burden to her. Um, I think, she, but I think she pursues being a. a big famous person who's well respected and she does it well um, she does maintain kind of the person she always was though which is this, the smartest person in the room mm-hmm. um, quite often the funniest person in the mm-hmm. room and um, she'll be blunt with you too as I remember absolutely always yeah. was always uh-huh. was yeah. she didn't she doesn't take bullshit she that's what I always tolerate res- yeah yeah especially at Second City she'd, she was one of the few people that would stand up to the producers yeah oh yeah yeah and to her castmates as well, but mm-hmm. she was never like crazy confrontational. She was just right, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so it didn't take much uh, 
fire and brimstone from her. It was just like she just kind of stated what the truth was, and people were going, oh, she's right, because she can assess the situation mm -hmm. like no one I've ever met. And uh, so, you know, it's hard to fight someone who's generally correct. Do you ever, like, for me, I always like to analyze the people that have gone on. I've analyzed, I'll analyze your career. It's, I do like a reading, like Nora does, but it's for career. Do you ever analyze what... The talent aside, we know Tina has a lot of talent. What makes her such a megastar? Um, I think it's because generally she's really likable, kind of vulnerable, but also the opposite. She's just tough and funny. The thing is she's consistently funny mm -hmm. and not in a way you can pre predict. She's really clever. And so just she, she can... You know, write Mean Girls, and that's you know a brilliant script and a, and a great movie. Um, and you can respect her skill as a writer, but then you see her on talk shows, and she's effervescent and playful, and still whip smart. Never plays dumb. Never plays down. Uh, and you know that's one of the first things we learn. In, in intermediate improv, which is always played at the top of your intelligence. Right, that's what Karen Little taught you. That's right. Um, and she does that. She really, and she plays at the top of her intelligence. She always, she'll never dumb down anything she thinks is funny. And uh, that means she trusts the audience. I think that's a big but thing. But there's also a side of her self-deprecation in terms of she admits she's not a great actress. You know, she's admitted that before. Yeah, I think she believes that too, but you I, know, I disagree with her. Um, have you ever talked to her about it? But trying to convince her she's... Is a good actress? No. <laughs> no, I've... I, I, actually, in Chicago I did it. Cause oh, she, even back then she didn't think she was a good... Did well, she, she always never, think of herself as a writer, more or less? No, but... Um, but she, you know, she was kind of the new girl uh, mm -hmm. in, in that the first of two shows we did together and you know she was kind of quiet and uh, on stage she was quiet no backstage okay she was a little, she's kind of she when i first met her she was like in this big parka with huge glasses and just very mousy and and she dressed it too i mean she was heavier remember she wasn't heavier. very she wasn't very she wasn't the sex say it. what are you gonna say I, she was what? she she's was not what she's not the sex what this the sex bomb she is today or this you know <laughs> Is it? Uh, yes, that's. I mean, in in your is this eyes, making you is this making you is this making you uncomfortable? No, no, I love watching you squeam. Okay, because I am totally squeaming. Um, <laughs> she was heavier. I was heavier. We were, you know, it was a you different. You lost a lot of weight. So have you? Have I? Well, there was a period in L.A. Remember, in between shows, I think that you you got real heavy, I, and yeah, people were kind of concerned. They'd say, "Oh, did you see Scott? He's, he's really... They didn't. Know. Yes, they did. They never. Yes, did. they did. Never did. Yes, they you did. You were in L.A. Yes. Okay. Where were we with Tina? You were saying she was fat. Yes, she was really fat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, she was never. She was never fat. She just got thinner. Right. Um, but she wasn't. I mean, there was now today. She she exudes sexuality. Back then, she didn't. Would would you agree on that? Yeah, I think she she she's aware that she she can be sexy. I think that's kind of a new concept to her. I think she enjoys it, and um, and she, it's a go to. It's not it's not who she is. But she she is part part marketing and part just. Um, 
I think she feels good about herself, so she likes to feel pretty. Yeah, I uh, and she, I think she's very pretty. I can tell. <laughs> okay, let's uh, uh, Tracy Morgan. Very pretty. Yeah, <laughs> crazy in real life, like a fox. Okay, he's he's a smart guy. Okay, and he will distract you from understanding that. <laughs> What's the craziest thing you've ever seen him do? Offset. Hmm. You know, I don't. Do spend, you not like talking about this? No, no, no. It's not that I don't spend a lot of time uh, with Tracy. Um, I hear him. He's his dressing room is right across the hall from mine. I hear him talking very loudly to his posse. He usually has about five people in his dressing room at all times, opposed to you who have three. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I just have my manicures, <laughs> and uh, he his he's an opinion machine, mm-hmm. and. He's he's got an opinion on everything. He can talk about it for ten minutes straight, um, and generally, it's you know he's not far from wrong. He he's. I don't see you. I don't see you. Quite often, he's the smartest guy in the room. But he. Well, what well, happens when Tina and him get in the same room? It's murder. <laughs> <laughs> um, what skills did you learn in Second City that helped you uh, on Thirty Rock? Listen to Tina. Um, there's actually a class now. That's called your team. I think it is trust your audience um, to to, un, to to catch things to um, be as quick and as smart as you. Um, and specifically on Thirty Rock, um, I'm not sure. It's a good question. I don't, we don't improvise on the show, you know. The, the script comes ready to go, and there's not much tweaking that needs to go on. So um, I, think, I think I became a better actor at Second City. Um, well, you had more range at Second City, right? Yeah. I mean, Pete Hornberger is, is, uh, is wonderfully limited. Uh, and so he's kind of, you can kind of guess how he's going to respond to everything. Is that frustrating for you, or is it that, like, you know what, this is a job, and... It's a great job, right? That's it's a it's a it's a fantastic job, um, um, and and Pete has gotten to do a, a variety of things, but generally he's you know he's not the driver of stories. Generally, right. um, he's a, re- a reactor, a responder, or, or a source of information on the show. Um, so, you know, he he is either upset about what he has to do; he has to do his job, or he's panicked. About something, um, you and know. That it, it, as long as as long as it, it, the panic comes from an honest place and it's funny, and I get to you know, say funny things or do funny things, then I'm happy. Um, you're, you're you're doing improv now, still constantly, constantly. Um, you're known for showing up at the last minute. Yes. Okay. Is that a ritual when you do a show, an improv show? I just I don't like. I don't like getting to the theater and waiting to do a show. I like to... My, my best shows at Second City came about... The most exciting nights for me, once I'd kind of like gotten into the groove, were the nights when I couldn't find parking. And I'd be driving around Old Town, uh, you know, and eventually circling, you know, seven blocks away looking for parking, and then eventually having to call and say... Uh, or, or even before I had a phone, I think, in my, my pocket, I would pull up and an intern would park my car and I would run upstairs and it would be five after showtime and I'd go up and, and change into my uh, my suit 
and run on stage and I'd get like if I was in the opening scene which quite often I was I would sit down or, or get in my position and the lights would come up immediately that's exhilarating I if I could be late to everything I would I love it and I get now I get to the theater at, uh, at the UCB which is where I perform generally uh, I'll get there after the audience is all loaded in and have bought their drinks and I'll, I'll walk and kind of weave in because generally it's like standing room only and I have to weave around people and they look at me like, what? what? Aren't you supposed to be? Yeah. I spent a half hour waiting for you. You're just getting here now? Um, but I don't, want, I don't want to be backstage. Um, does it make you And I don't warm up anymore. I don't, I don't, you don't do zip zips up? Or I you don't. don't do, so when you're doing shows with, let's, let's say, Jet, who you haven't worked, Jet Avalitz, who you haven't worked with really that much. I think we've done three or four shows. Okay. You, you, there's not, there's, what, do you exchange texts before the show or? Yeah, we, we agree we'll be at the theater at showtime. Okay. All right. Um, and that doesn't, and you're totally comfortable with that. More comfortable like that. Okay. Yeah, because I, 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 um, I don't like sitting down before a show. I don't like like pacing, uh, I, just waiting to go on stage. I just want to get on stage. I want to ride in the theater. I'd, if I could do it without putting my bag or whatever down, if I could come into the theater without taking off my coat, I'd just walk straight from the doors onto the stage and start. Were you one of those people that, you know, there was two schools of, of improv. It's like, okay, you know, go out and hang out with people at the bars and get to know them and be part of their lives. And then there was a school that's like, eh, it doesn't matter. You just show up. Were you more of the just show up? No, guy? no, no. I would, I would go out. I'd be at the bar until four. Okay. Uh, back then, all the time, I would come home smelling like uh, cigarettes. cigarettes back like you then, believe it was awful, and I didn't smoke, but people thought I did because of my clothes. Right. Um, I just want to end with this. The, the, I read something in the Onion. They did an interview, which I think came out today, and it said, it said that uh, that you you said that you haven't made your mark yet, mm-hmm. and. My question is, what does Scott Adsit have to do to make his mark? You've done Mr. Show. You've done all these uh, 30 Rock. You've done all these uh, groundbreaking shows at Second City. What is? What, what do you need to still make your mark? I've been hired help so far. And I think I need to, to be the creator of something to make a mark. I've been, I've been of service to people, which is great. And sometimes really rewarding. But... Um, I haven't done anything that's just mine. But hasn't that been your role? I mean, when I look at Second City stuff all the way, you always were there to service the scene. If anybody gave you an idea, you made it better. Um, that's been your role up until this point. How do you change that? <laughs> when I know, I'll hire you. And then you'll work for me. Scott Acid. I will hold you to that. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Scott Asset, 30 Rock, Mr. Show, Moral Oral, one of my favorite shows that you created Thank with you. Dino. And uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenhole as well. Yes. Do you know about that? No. <laughs> well, thank you for saying yes. Uh, Dino created a show called Mary Shelley's Frankenhole, and we did two seasons of it so far. And uh, uh, I'm Adult Swim. Yep. Yeah, it's doing very well. Stop motion. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh, it's weird humor, but it's fun. And are we going to see a Moral Oral, uh, a special, or a com- coming back? Because it's gotten great buzz yeah, it's with got, the fans. It's, um, yeah, we're doing a special. We're doing a... Cri- uh, Christmas, uh, Christmas, holiday special? Nope, nope, just uh, it's called Before Oral. Okay. 
And it's a, a prequel? prequel? Yeah. Great. Thanks again, Scott. All right. Do I look sexier without the weight? Uh, yes. Now this happens. That's it. Another episode of Improv Nerd. Uh, I'd like to thank my guest, Scott Atzett, and as always, my producer, Ben Caprero, the good people here at the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival, and you for listening to Improv Nerd. For more information uh, on Improv Nerd, please, please go to our Facebook page and like us. It really helps with my self-esteem. And if you want more information about Improv Nerd or Jimmy Corain's, that's my uh, 2012 Innie Award-winning classes, The Art of Slow Comedy, go to www.jimmycorain.com. And remember, as always, walk, don't run. I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? <laughs> Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, oh my he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God.